Digital fundraising continues to grow, including through crowdfunding. And when you think about charitable crowdfunding, who gives, who gives to what, and why? Hi, I'm Bill Stanjakevich. This is the first day from the Fundraising School, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Andrea Pachter. Andrea is a longtime leader of the Women's Philanthropy Institute and now serves as a research consultant at the Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. And Andrea, thanks so much for being with us to discuss this latest research. What does this study find? What are the highlights concerning crowdfunding? Hi, Bill. Thanks so much for having us to talk about the newest project from the research department at the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. So we, we, we tackled this project to really get a better understanding of who crowdfunding donors are and how they differ or are similar to typical charitable donors. And we found in this study that crowdfunding donors tend to be younger, they're less religious, and they're more likely to be single. Now, in contrast, that means that traditional charitable donors are older, they tend to be more religious, have more religiosity, and they are generally married or, part or partnered. So what this suggested to us is that crowdfunding, one of the new philanthropic giving vehicles, is opening the gates to philanthropy to a broader audience. That would seem to provide more potential for fundraisers if they're willing to learn how to reach out to that audience. Is that correct? Yes, it is correct. It's important to remember that this particular study looked at crowdfunding donors and not quite so much how nonprofits can use um, crowdfunding to garner more donors. But I think the implication is that if nonprofits understand that a different set of people are using crowdfunding, then they can figure out, and there certainly are a lot of charitable organizations on crowdfunding platforms uh, that they can figure out how to engage that audience. And Andrea, is there any sense of the size or scope of this audience, uh, you know, just within the context of charitable giving overall, you know, how much fundraising is happening via crowdfunding? That's uh, a great question. What I can tell you is that 2020 was a banner year for online giving. And after this report went to press, the Blackboard 2020 charitable giving report came out. And that's really in some ways the gold standard about online giving. And it reported that 13% uh, of total online of, of fundraising, 13% of total fundraising came from online sources. Now that in and of itself is interesting, right? But it represented a 21% growth in year over year online giving. We were home. We couldn't go anywhere. We sheltered in place. We shopped online. We ordered our food online and we gave online. And within that 13%, again, a significant share of these donors are younger, less religious, and far less likely to be married. So we need to keep that in mind that there could be different approaches, not only just if the fundraising request is happening in person, but also the type of person we're willing to meet or that we're going to meet if we're doing so through crowdfunding. And you know, what else is this study pointing to, Andrew? Do we know you know, where these crowdfunding donors are sending their dollars? Are there some causes that are more popular than others, some subsectors that have been more successful than others? What do we know about this donor behavior? Okay, first of all, the average contribution 
to a crowdfunding campaign is relatively small. One report found that it's about $99 um, per year. Our report found that in general, crowdfunding donors give about $189 a year through this platform. So there's plenty of opportunity for them to give in other ways. One of the interesting things about this study is that we found that crowdfunding complements traditional charitable giving. It is not in lieu of, or as I like to say, it doesn't crowd it out. So crowdfunding is not crowding out. No, well, that's my theory. And that, I mean, the research would support that. But when you ask about the causes, this report did not go into the, the nonprofit sectors, education, the arts, health, et cetera. What it did is it, it asked about the types of activities that donors support. And I found that this to be a very interesting piece of the puzzle as well. So most people are using crowdfunding to contribute to family members or close friends. It was about 52.5% of crowdfunding donors use the platform that way. And then the second category is about 47.1% use it to support a nonprofit organization. So they're, they're, they're following you know, typical patterns, but this was something that I thought was so interesting. What crowdfunding does is it allows us as donors to give money directly to individuals. So this is another way that this particular philanthropic giving vehicle is expanding our understanding and making philanthropy a little bit more elastic. Yeah, and again, we wanna make sure our audience understands the full broad definition of philanthropy that our school utilizes. And you know, philanthropy, voluntary action for the public good, those actions can be charitable giving, they can be volunteering our time, volunteering our voice through advocacy and organizing a petition or using our contact list to get the word out. And, uh, you know, charitable giving certainly can be through established, qualified nonprofit organizations. But we also see philanthropic behavior when people give to other individuals voluntarily or even, you know, a previous study from the Women's Philanthropy Institute, how some, especially in the younger generations, were considering that you know, if I increase the size of my tip when, you know, getting takeout food right. or, you know, something like that is viewed as a philanthropic behavior. So again, at the fundraising school, we're focused on professional fundraisers, board members, volunteers, raising money for established nonprofit organizations. But as we do so, Andrea, this study helps us understand uh, how fundraisers need to think about people and how those people view their philanthropic behavior. And one way, apparently this study is showing is through crowdfunding, even when I'm directly helping individuals, not necessarily established nonprofit organizations. So this report does not necessarily suggest that every nonprofit should go out and create a campaign on a crowdfunding platform. But what I think it does suggest is that it's an opportunity for nonprofits to step back and look at their website and make sure that there are that it's easy and accessible for people to use um, because these crowdfunding platforms are easy and accessible for people to use. And if there are too many clicks for us as individuals to visit a nonprofit website, we're not likely to want to continue to engage with that organization. So that's number one, to double check our website. The second thing is to make sure that we have compelling stories on our website so that they um, they can reach broader audiences. I mean, we like to say that it's both data 
and stories that help engage a donor, male or female, with the head, the heart, and the hands. The hands, of course, are the ones that make the contribution. So compelling stories are very important as well. What I learned in doing the research for the crowdfunding report is that, first of all, there are thousands and thousands of campaigns that never reach their goals. But the campaigns that do reach their goals seem to be those that have a specific need and a compelling story. And one example I could give you is the Smithsonian Institution has tens of thousands of artifacts, right? Well, they needed a little boost, a little extra money to restore the red slippers that Dorothy wore in the fabulous Wizard of Oz movie. Well, they didn't go back to Congress and ask for an additional allotment. They did a crowdfunding campaign. And within a week, they raised far more. They, their, their goal was $300,000. They ended up raising $350,000. They did an additional campaign and they were able to restore the Scarecrow's costume as well. So that's an example. I mean, the Smithsonian is a government agency, but we like to think of museums as nonprofits. That's an example of a very specific project, a compelling story, great pictures of memories for a lot of people, and they exceeded their goals. You know, Andrea, that is a great story. The Smithsonian, of course, with a very successful multi-billion dollar comprehensive campaign uh, that was conducted just a few short years ago. And when we think about comprehensive campaign, we think about the large gifts, the six, mm -hmm. seven, eight figure gifts that can lead a campaign. And yet a key component of the Smithsonian success was that all gifts matter, gifts of all sizes matter uh, to through different vehicles to different population groups. And if you weren't able to give a six, seven or eight figure gift, they loved that you helped out Dorothy and the Scarecrow with a crowdfunding gift. And it really demonstrates, Andrew, that crowdfunding, and this study seems to support this, won't be your only solution to fundraising, right. but can be considered as part of an overall fundraising plan. Would you agree? I would agree 100%. And, and I think that as we move further along in the 21st century, and as the younger generations are going to become far more dominant, that uh, it's really at our peril if we do not think about the different kinds of uh, philanthropic giving vehicles that are out there and the kinds of people who use them. So we need both crowdfunding and planned giving to get the broadest spectrum of donors uh, to work with our nonprofits. And as fundraisers, we need to continually learn, continually adapt to make sure that we're relevant and responsive to where today's donors are and where tomorrow's donors are taking us. Again, the report is charitable crowdfunding. Who gives to what and why? How do you find this free report? Well, you go to the website, philanthropy.iupui.edu. Now across the top toolbar, you'll see the word research. You'll see a pull down menu and you'll be able to find the study there. A couple of spots over on that top toolbar, you'll see the words professional development. That's where you find the fundraising school and TFRS at your desk, where you can find information about our public courses. We're in person in many locations and growing over time, but we still have several courses available online, either recorded or live. We have custom training that can come directly to you or happen online. We have our quarterly webinars, these weekly podcasts, and also the crisis response scholarships. Now, in the area of digital fundraising, we're coming out with a new certificate in digital fundraising. This will be three different courses. You take all of them online and you earn this new certificate. Again, this all starts with our school's website, philanthropy.iupui.edu. 
Our guest today is Andrea Pachter. This podcast is made possible by the wonderful skills of our production colleagues, Jennifer Boffman and Mike Anthony. I'm Bill Stanjakevich, and now you are now more fully informed on this first day from the Fundraising School. Thank you.